You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 12. We'll read from verse 20 down through the end of verse 33. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to the worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, The voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Bow our heads. Our Father, we thank you that though we are surrounded by a world of darkness and a world that loves that darkness and a world that is ruled over by the prince of darkness, that you have given us your light of your truth and your word. And it is not by any effort of our own doing, and it is not by our own wisdom or our own abilities that we have come to see and to know and to love the truth. But that in itself is a gift of your grace, and we thank you for it. We thank you that you have allowed us to know the truth and that it has been granted to us. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to the truth of Scripture. And we pray now that as we look at your word, that it might shed that light of revelation upon our hearts and upon our minds, and that you, by a work of your Spirit, would sanctify us by your truth and conform us to the image of Christ, and give us, we pray, a love for the truth, and a love for your word, which is the truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at the cross, and last week we looked at the the glory of the cross, and today we are looking at the victory of the cross, and Jesus, as he is in the final week of his life, began to explain to the crowds and to the disciples the necessity of his death, and in doing so, then he talked about the two things that would come out of his death, one being glory, to God the Father, and the second being victory over his enemies. And last week we looked at the glory of the cross. Now, you may have wondered, because I certainly have in times past, how is it possible that that God could be glorified through something as horrific as the death of Christ? How is the Father glorified through that? I mean, Jesus, in describing his death, has talked about dying as as a grain of wheat falling into the earth, and that grain of wheat would die and it would bear much fruit. How is it possible that through the murder of such a holy and innocent person, that the Father could be glorified through such a horrific act. How is that possible? The glory of God really is a good, an easy and good way to think of the glory of God is that it is the visible manifestation of God's attributes. When God's attributes, those things that are true about Himself, when those things are displayed, then God is glorified. 
And when you take the sum total of God's attributes and you put them all together and you have a visible manifestation of that, it is a piercing and blinding glory like the like those who have seen God or seen parts of God like Moses and Isaiah. It is a glory that those men describe. It is the visible manifestation of His attributes. So anytime an attribute of God is displayed or made manifest, God is glorified. So how is God glorified in the death of Christ? Well, think of all of the attributes of God which are put on display at the cross. You have there at the cross the the grace of God on display, His compassion towards sinners. You have His judgment and His justice on display because we see at the cross what the wrath of God being poured out upon a sinner would look like. And though Jesus was not a sinner, He stood in the sinner's stead so that God treated him as if he were a sinner, so that he could treat me as if I were righteous, which I'm not. And he was not a sinner. But God treated Christ as if he were, so that he could treat me as if Christ deserves to be treated, which is as a righteous individual. So there at the cross you have the judgment and the justice and the wrath of God against sin that is displayed. You have the love of God towards sinners and the compassion and the mercy of God towards sinners. And then think about the wisdom of God. How wise is it in the eternal counsels of God that He would devise a plan? This is that last song that we sang kind of talks about this. How wise is it that in the eternal counsels of God He would devise a plan, a way by which guilty, undeserving sinners with an infinite sin debt could be totally forgiven and declared righteous and have their slates entirely wiped clean and be treated as if they had never sinned and only done the righteousness of God that they should be treated like that, and that all of their sin should be punished on another. And that God would not just turn a blind eye to sin, as if pretending that it never happened, but that He should in actuality account all of those sins, but not to the account of sinners, but that He would lay all of those sins upon a righteous one who would bear their wrath. That is the wisdom of God in His eternal counsels on display at the cross. So how is the Father glorified at the cross? We see His justice, we see His love, His grace, His compassion, His mercy, His wisdom, His wrath against sin, His holiness. We see all of that on display. That that God could be righteous and that He could declare righteous sinners, declare sinners to be righteous and still not compromise His righteousness because in fact He punishes every single sin committed by His people on His Son so that He could declare those who are His completely righteous. God is glorified at the cross. In fact, I think that the cross is one of the most central elements, not only in glorifying God in this world, but also in the world to come, where we will sing of our gracious Redeemer for all of eternity. And we will never forget the cross, because not one day will pass in eternity where we will say to ourselves, I wonder how I got here. I wonder why I'm here. I wonder who I have to give credit to for me being here. My wisdom, my understanding, my smarts, my good looks, what do I owe this to? It will always be because of Him. And we will remember constantly the cross. And that will be at the center of our worship. It will be at the center of our praise for all of eternity because that will never grow old. In that way, the Father is glorified in the death of His Son. But not only is the cross a glory to God the Father, but it is also a victory over His enemies. And we looked at verses 26 through 29 last week, and we're picking it up at verse 30 today. So after Jesus prayed that the Father would glorify Himself through the events that were to unfold, Rather than asking the Father to deliver him from the suffering, he prayed, Father, glorify your name in this suffering. And the Father gave him that assurance, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. 
And then some in the crowd thought that they heard thunder. Some in the crowd thought knew that they had heard a voice. They thought it was supernatural, but attributed it to the voice of an angel and not to the voice of God. So now we pick it up in verse 30, and we're going to see in verses 30 to 33 that the cross is also not just glory to God the Father, but also victory over his enemies. And there are three elements of that victory that we're going to see unfold here. Beginning in verse 30, Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. The very fact that there was an audible voice spoken, and it was such a rare event in the New Testament. Remember, there were only three occasions where this ever happened, where anybody in the crowd or anybody on earth ever heard the voice of the Father from heaven. Those three occasions during the life and ministry of Jesus were at his baptism, at the transfiguration in Matthew 17, baptism in Matthew 3, and then here in John chapter 12 toward the end of his life. That was a rare event. Now obviously, and Jesus is saying something I think is patently obvious to us, that the voice was not spoken for his sake. Jesus didn't need to hear a voice from heaven. He was in constant communion with the Father. There was no doubt in his mind that the Father would glorify himself through his crucifixion and his death on the cross. There was no doubt in Jesus' mind that that was the goal of the Father. That's why he came here. And he said that over and over again. I have come for this purpose. This is why the Father has sent me. I have come to do this. He knew what the Father was going to accomplish through his death on the cross. So Jesus didn't need the Father to, to sort of tap him on the shoulder and say, it's okay, son, everything's going to be all right. I'm going to glorify myself. Jesus didn't need that. He was in constant communion with the Father, and he knew that the Father would answer his most righteous prayer to glorify the Father's name through the suffering. Further, if it had been for Jesus' sake, if the Father had needed to say something for Jesus' sake, he wouldn't have needed to say it audibly so the rest of the crowd could hear it. He just simply would have communicated that to the Son, and the Son and His divine omniscience would have known the answer to that. So the fact that there was an audible voice is proof positive that the voice itself was for the sake of those in the crowd. But you might say, how is it that those in the crowd, if the, if the voice was for those in the crowd, how is it that they missed it? Was the benefit of the voice entirely lost on them? If it was for their sakes, why is it that some of them said, oh, thunder, is we expecting bad weather today? And others said that must have been the voice of an angel. Because the crowd largely missed it. But I don't think that the crowd is all that is in mind here. When Jesus says this voice was not for my sake, but for your sakes, not for my benefit, but for yours, I don't think he is talking just strictly about the crowd. There's nothing in the text that seems to indicate that the disciples missed it. Some in the crowd, who were not the disciples, I would understand it, thought it had thundered. Some of them thought they heard the voice of an angel. But there's nothing here that says that the, the effect or the benefit of the voice was entirely lost on the disciples. I think the disciples not only heard it, but they got it and they understood it. And what was the intended benefit to those who would hear? Let me offer you three intended benefits of the voice for those who heard it. First, this would be for them, for the disciples and those who heard the voice and understood it. It would be a comfort to them concerning God's will in coming events. This would comfort them concerning God's will in coming events. Jesus has just spoken about his death. He is going to be lifted up. He came to Jerusalem not to be crowned as king. He came to Jerusalem to die. He knew that's why he was coming. He has told the disciples on multiple occasions leading up to Jerusalem that that is why he was coming. And now they are facing not a coronation and and, and a big welcome by the crowd. They're not next week going to sit down on thrones. Jesus has told them, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Verse 24. So that is why he came. He came to die. Now the disciples, and the benefit of this is they could be comforted concerning these future events. When they get into crucifixion, the time of the crucifixion, the Garden of Gethsemane, the arrest, the trials, the crucifixion, the beatings and the scourging and all of that, they should have, I don't know if they did, I doubt if they did, but they should have reflected back upon this and said, hold on a second, we heard the Father say that He was going to glorify Himself on all that is coming to pass. 
Is there anything that is outside of his loving, sovereign control? The answer to that is no. Do I believe that what is unfolding in front of me with this person whom I believe to be the Messiah is in fact the will of God? It must be. And the Father has already promised that what I am watching unfold in this crucifixion is in fact for his glory. It would have served to comfort them concerning God's will in those events. A second benefit to them would be it would confirm their belief that Jesus is the Son sent by the Father. The religious leaders called him a blasphemer, a a false teacher, a false messiah, a liar, a deceiver of the people. They called him every conceivable name that you can think of. Uh, Some of them not even worth repeating. They called him all kinds of horrible things. But Jesus had perpetually said and constantly said, I'm sent by the Father and the divine Son. I have come for this reason. I have come from heaven. I am the Son of the Father. Uh, The Father and I are one. This would for them, the disciples, confirm their belief. Because though the nation, national leaders had rejected him, it would only follow suit within a couple of days that the rest of the nation would reject him. And the disciples would have here the confirmation from heaven, the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I have been glorified through his life. I will be glorified through his death. That all that the Son did was well pleasing to the Father. This would remind the disciples of that. And the third benefit or encouragement would be that the disciples would then be encouraged to follow him. You see, Jesus had just told the disciples, you have to hate this life for the life to come. And if you love this life, you lose not only this life, but also the life to come. I'm going to die, and I want you to follow me. And if you are going to follow me, then you will be where I am at, and the Father will honor you. That's verses 24, 25, 26. That's what he says in those verses. So that's the challenge. That's the demand of the gospel. You want to follow me? It might cost you your life. Now, maybe God might not ask you to give up your life to follow Christ, but you need to be willing to consider that as your life as loss in order that you may gain Christ. And that's the demand of the gospel. Well, if he's going to suffer and die, and he is calling me to follow him, what might that mean of me? That I would suffer and die. And here's the encouragement to the disciples. If the Father can be glorified through the suffering of his Son... It should encourage us to know that He can be glorified through the suffering of His servants. So if I follow the Son and I suffer as well, I have this confidence that if the Father can be glorified through that and I'm following after Him, then whatever God might call me to give up, whatever God might call me to face and to endure, He can be glorified through that as well. That would be an encouragement to them. Then Jesus turns His attention to the victory that the cross would bring. And I want you to look at verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. There are three statements of victory there in the cross. Two of them are stated negatively in terms of judgment. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. The third one is stated positively in terms, not of judgment, but in terms of the spoil of the victory itself. If I am lifted up, because he is lifted up, the world is judged, the prince of the world is cast out, And because he is lifted up, he is going to take spoil from the world and from the ruler of the world, and he is going to draw all men to himself. So two negative statements in terms of judgment upon the world and Satan, and then a positive statement in terms of the spoil that he would affect through his death. He would end up drawing all men to himself. So we'll take each of those three statements in turn. First one is that the world is judged. I want you to notice in verse 31 that Jesus uses the term now twice. And there is an emphasis emphasis there of sorts. Now, judgment is upon the world. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And there is an emphasis there on now, as if because Jesus has been talking about this hour. 
Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? No, for this reason, I have come to this hour. So he has in mind a specific event, a specific time. And he is in essence saying, now is the time. It has arrived. What God the Father promised in the Garden of Eden, that he would send the seed of a woman to crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel, now this has arrived. What Abraham longed to see that day, it is now. What all of the righteous from all of the Old Testament longed to see, what they waited for, what they expected, what they hoped would come to pass in their lives, that they would see the Messiah and see the sin-bearer, now it has come to pass. Now the Father has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. What Isaiah prophesied 700 years ago, now it has come. And he is, he is talking about this hour. This is something significant. Now, at this hour, the hour of His of judgment, the hour of His cross, these three things are going to happen. Number one, the world would be judged. By world there, the, the term world can be translated a number of different ways. Sometimes it can be translated as individual people. Sometimes it can refer to the created cosmos. Sometimes it can refer to the world system. And I think it here is referring to the world system. Uh, Jesus and John are not talking about now the world is judged as if God is pouring out His wrath upon mountains and trees and lakes and valleys and streams and physical created entities and planets. That's not what's being described here. By world, I think that John is speaking in the moral sense. He is describing not the physical creation. He is describing the world system, the satanic world system, the anti-God system that sets itself against God and against His Word and against His will and against the light and militates against God and His people. That's the satanically controlled world system. The very next phrase, the ruler of this world, refers to Satan. And so it seems quite natural to take world, not in the sense of a, of a created sphere, but in the sense of the moral world system that aligns itself against God. It's, it's used here in the same way as in 1 John chapter 2 when John says, Love not the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, it's from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God will live forever. And John is, described, John is using the term world here in that sense. It is that world system. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That world system sets itself up against God. And it is... The world is like the sea in which the children of the devil swim. Do you think that fish are aware that they swim in water? They don't. Probably not until you take a fish out of water, and even then I don't think the fish are self-aware. But a fish just swims in water. And do you think he ever thinks to himself, there is a world outside of here that's not water? He's never been there. He's never seen it. He's never known it. He just swims in the water. The world system is like the water that the children of the devil swim in. It's all they know. It's just darkness. It's immorality. It's godlessness. And they go on about their day, day day after day after day, without giving any thought to God. And if it does briefly enter their minds, if He briefly enters their minds, it goes right out the other side as quickly as they can be distracted by the next trinket or shiny object. They have the ultimate ADHD. They absolutely cannot concentrate on anything spiritual for any period of time. And this is just the world in which they live. It's the waters in which they swim. And they're not aware of anything outside of it. It's all iniquity, it's all sin, it's worldliness, it's sexuality, it's immorality, it's debauchery, it's drunkenness, it's all of that. And that's just the world in which they live. And the world system, the way of thinking, is anti-God. They never give any thought to what would be the will of God in this, or what does the Word of God say, or what is the truth concerning this. It's just the way that they live their lives. And it is completely the opposite of the way that God would have it done. And all of it, the education system, the culture in which we live, the politics and the whole political system and the court system 
and the entertainment system and everything that you and I are surrounded by is part of that anti-God system. And, and those who are in it do not even give any thought to God whatsoever. That is the world. And so Jesus says, now judgment has come upon the world. In what sense has the world been judged at the cross? Is the world right now under the eternal judgment of God? Has it ceased to exist? Has it been done away with? No, it hasn't. It, it, look, what I referenced in the announcements is evidence of the fact that there is an entire world system that militates, militates against God and, and wants to live their lives without reference to any standard of right and wrong and without any standards to holiness. They, they hate God and they love the darkness. So the world has not been judged in the sense that it has been destroyed and taken out of the way. In what sense was the world judged? The, world, the word judgment there is a word that can refer to the actual judgment upon something. It can also refer to uh, a verdict or a decision or a legal verdict that is handed down. And I think that that is the sense in which it is used here. At the cross, the world system's judgment, the verdict upon it, was signed, sealed, and delivered. The verdict was decreed when Christ died on the cross the world was judged. Does that mean that it's been done away with? No. But the verdict has been handed down. The judgment is certain. And what the world thought was its ultimate triumph, crucifying the King of Light, the Lord of Light, what they thought was their ultimate triumph was actually the death knell of their own doom. And in crucifying the Son, they sealed their doom. And now it is most certain. Has it been taken out of the way? Has it been done away with and abolished? No, it's just as much alive and active as it has ever been. But its doom is absolutely certain because at the cross, the world has been judged. That whole system will perish. It is passing away. It is destined to be destroyed because of what Christ did on the cross. Second, the prince of this world is cast out. Satan is cast out. And by prince of this world, he is referring to the ruler of this world. That's how the NASB translates it. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now in what sense has Satan been cast out? He's using the term ruler of this world to speak of Satan's activity, his, um, his rule over this world system that he has described. John would understand this world system to be the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Who is in charge of this system? Who is the being at the top who administrates all of this darkness and loves it? Who is the one behind it? In the destruction of nations and cultures and Christianity and the persecution of the church, is there some mastermind conspiracy? The Bilderberger Rothschild people sitting in dark towers somewhere planning all of this out. No, there's not. Is there a conspiracy? Yeah, Satan is Satan's running the whole thing. You want to say who's behind the conspiracy? Who is it? It's the devil. The whole system is his. And the whole thing is, is all his marionettes, his puppets, dancing and doing exactly what he wants them to do. You know, you know why you were flooded with ungodliness on a college campus? Who do you think's behind that? Your professor? He's not your enemy. It's the principalities and the powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age. It's the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. They're the ones who set the agenda. Everybody else just lives by it. And the flesh produces it. And the flesh loves the world system. And Satan is control of the whole thing. He's the mastermind behind it. He's the ruler of this age. It's not ruler in the sense of he is sovereign and omnipotent and he does whatever he wants and he has unfettered control and unfettered ownership of this creation. That's not it at all. He is the ruler in the sense that he is the one behind the entire system that sets itself against God. And all of his children do his bidding. And John says in 1 John chapter 5, 
Verse 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So in what way has is he cast out? Does this mean that Satan has been bound? Is this the same? Is this casting out the binding of Satan in Revelation 20? No, it's not. He's been cast out in the sense that he has been bound, that he is inactive. You think Satan is inactive? He's not inactive. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, wandering about to and fro throughout the earth, deceiving. And he is actively involved in all of those things. He is the prince who rules in these things. He He's the one who orchestrates all of the world system. He's not inactive. He's not bound. He's not kept from deceiving anybody. Is he cast out? Has he been kicked out of creation? The Bible describes a time in Revelation 12 during the tribulation when he will be cast out of the heavens. No more room was found for him and he was cast out, Revelation 12. Eventually he'll be cast into a bottomless pit. After that he will be cast into eternal flames where he will be judged. So Satan's going to be cast around a lot. He's going to be cast out of heaven, cast into a pit, and cast into eternal hell. But now, but now he is not cast out. But as with the world, the certainty of his judgment has been fixed by the cross. See, not only has the world system been judged and the verdict has been given, but Satan himself is going to be cast out. That, that, that is a stroke of confidence that you and I should have. That ought to settle our hearts, knowing that although he is active, he is alive, he is well, he is a real enemy, he is very busy right now doing everything that he wants to do, that God allows him to do, that his time is short, his doom is certain, and just as the world thought it was gaining its greatest victory in crucifying the Son, so Satan thought he might have been gaining a victory in killing the Lord of Light. He wasn't. Just, the, just as the crucifixion was the death knell of the world system, it was the certain judgment of Satan himself. And he will be executed eternally. So though he has been judged, the verdict has been handed down, his fate has been sealed, he is like a prisoner on death row awaiting his execution. There is, a, there is a time period between the verdict being given and the execution being carried out. And we live in that time period. He will be cast out. He will be destroyed. Because the cross has secured that and guaranteed it. Now there is the third statement. The first two are mentioned in terms of negative things. The world is judged. Satan is cast out. And then the third one, verse 32. And, it, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. This is the third one mentioned in terms of the spoil that would come from that victory. Uh, Christ in his death on the cross not only secured the destruction of the world and the destruction of the, uh, our enemy, the devil, but he has also secured a tremendous harvest of souls, of fruit, that will come out of his death. He will draw all men to himself. Verse 32. Now, I've heard this verse misused and abused two ways. I'm going to give you the two abuses of this verse. It's been misused and abused two ways. First, by worship leaders. And just to be clear, not our worship leaders, at least not as far as I can remember or that I am aware of. But sometimes you will hear, or I have at least heard, worship leaders say, look, Jesus promised if he is lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself. Let's lift up the name of Jesus so he can draw all men to himself. And in our worship, God is lifted up and he will use our worship to draw all men to him. Is that what Jesus is saying? Really? I mean, that is just a pathetic abuse and misuse and twisting of Scripture. John tells us exactly what Jesus meant by lifting up. It's not worship. It's verse 34, verse 33. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. He's not talking about worship. What was Jesus talking about? His crucifixion. Like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must also the Son of Man be lifted up. And Jesus is saying, when I am crucified, when I am hung on a cross, as a result of that death, he would end up drawing all men to himself. So it's not a worship verse. And by the way, your theology should tell you by now that the lost are not attracted to genuine worship. Do you understand that? 
The lost are not attracted to genuine worship. Worship does not attract lost people. Worship repels lost people. I've heard pastors say, we want to become the type of church that the unbelievers will feel comfortable coming to worship in. How do you get that? The only way you can do that is if you stop worshiping. Then the unbeliever will feel comfortable there. But I will tell you something. The more genuine and the more biblical and the more God-centered your worship is, the less an unbeliever will like it and the more he will hate it because unbelievers do not enjoy worship. Worship is not an evangelistic tool. We don't worship so that unbelievers will come to Christ. Unbelievers don't look at us with our hands raised and tears streaming down our face, on our knees, calling out to heaven and say, man, I want some of that. You know what they look at? They say, you're mad. You're insane. You're doing this to somebody that I've never seen, that you can't see? What type of an emotional insanity is this? That's how the unbelievers look at it. They don't see genuine worship, and I'm not saying that that necessarily is genuine worship, but they don't see genuine worship as something that attracts them to Jesus. They are repelled by genuine worship. This is not a worship verse. The second way that this verse is often misused is to suggest that the drawing here is God drawing all men to Christ savingly, meaning that all men will eventually be saved and that none will be lost in hell. That God draws all men savingly to Himself so that none will be lost and perish in hell. That's universalism, the teaching that God saves everybody, nobody actually goes to hell. Now the word draw here is the same word that we read back in John chapter 6 when Jesus said in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him, that is the drawn one, up. I will raise him up on the last day. It's the same word used for draw. Now in John chapter 6, Jesus attributes the drawing work to the Father. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me does the drawing, draws that one, and I will raise him up on the last day. In John chapter 12, Jesus is said to be the agent of the drawing, the one who does the drawing. Now that's no contradiction. It's just one of those things that's intended to show us that this is one of the works of the triune God where probably all three members of the Trinity are involved in this. The Father is drawing, the Son is drawing, and the Spirit is drawing. All three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have an active part in our salvation and are desirous to bring God's people, His chosen ones, to Himself. And that's the drawing that's being described here. Now, an Arminian will say, if Jesus says that He is drawing all men to Himself, then an Arminian would say that God draws all people equally. So He kind of spreads out grace like peanut butter grace. Everybody gets a little bit, it's all evenly spread out. So that yes, man has fallen in his sin, and he is destroyed, but God gives just enough grace to bring everybody up to the point where they can choose, and then by an act of our own will from that point, where we've all been received enough peanut butter grace that we can choose, we choose and we get life because of that. And so the Arminian will say, this is grace that is given to all men equally. But then you would have to ask the Arminian, do you then believe that all men will be saved? And most Arminians would say, no, 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 no. No, because God brings us all to that point does not mean that everybody's going to be saved because most will reject Him and some will accept Him. Of course, the determining factor then is not the grace of God that determines one of those or the calling of God since God has done nothing more for His sheep than He did for the goats. He's done the same thing to all of them equally. So the determining and deciding factor then is what? What I do with that grace. It's what I do with that grace that becomes the determining factor. So, if God draws all men equally, 
And that is what you believe, that God has done nothing more in the heart of Saul of Tarsus than he does in the heart of an idol-worshipping tribesman in South America who has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you believe that God has, a, has done nothing more to Saul to bring him to faith than to this other person to bring him to faith, that he draws all men equally in the same way, then you are stuck with only one of two possibilities. Either you believe that there is a radical contradiction, an irreconcilable contradiction between the teaching in John 6 and the teaching in John 12, or you are a universalist. Now, I would suggest to you, I would submit to you, that you have to reject universalism because it's patently unbiblical. So then you are only left with one option. There seems to be a hopeless contradiction between what Jesus teaches in John 6 and what Jesus teaches in John 12. And here's why there's a contradiction. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of my Father. I've come down from heaven to do the will of my Father, and this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given to me, I lose none. Now, nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws Him, and that one who comes I will raise up. What is the ultimate goal of all those whom the Father draws to the Son? They're raised up. How many of them are lost? Do you believe that a whole bunch of people are drawn, but then a bu- most of them are lost, and that the Father doesn't accomplish His will? You can't believe that. Jesus said, the ones who come to me are the ones given to me by the Father, They will come. I will not cast them away. I will not lose any of them. And I will save and give eternal life to and redeem every last one that the Father brings to me. Nobody can come. He lacks the ability. No man has the ability to come unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that one whom the Father draws, I will raise up. How many of those whom the Father draws does the Son raise up? He raises up all of them. He doesn't lose any of them. That's the teaching in John chapter 6. So there's no contradiction between... Sorry, sorry. if you believe in universalism, then you're a heretic. If you believe there's a contradiction between John 6 and 12, you have an issue. Jesus teaching two different things. But is there a way to reconcile this? When Jesus says, I draw all men unto myself, what is he talking about? Is he talking about all men? Everybody equally that receives this drawing? Do you really believe that God did nothing more to Saul of Tarsus than he did for the unbelieving idol worshiper in the jungles of South America who's never heard the gospel? Do you believe that the, the influence of the grace of God was equal in both hearts? I don't believe that. I don't believe that. So what is Jesus saying when he says, all men? Does he, men, does he mean every man without exception? Listen, the key is in the context, as it always is. It's always context, context, context. What sparked this decision? Or, sorry, this discussion. What sparked this discussion? What, what started this? Non-Jews... Coming to Jesus. And Philip scratched his head. I don't know what to do with this. Greeks coming to see our Jewish Messiah. Non-Jews wanting into the kingdom. I mean, we got a king. We got a Jewish king. We got a Jewish Messiah. It's a Jewish festival. We got Gentiles coming here. What do I do with this? He goes to Andrew. Andrew didn't know what to do with it. Philip and Andrew came to Jesus. Here's the answer. I'm going to die. And when I die, I'm drawing all men to me. What does Jesus mean? Every single person without exception? No, he means every single person without distinction. See, the issue in the text is what do we do with these non-Jews who have come seeking Jesus? And Jesus' answer is, I'm not coming just to draw Jews to myself. I'm coming to draw Gentiles to myself and Greeks to myself and Chinamen to myself and Africans to myself and black people and white people and all kinds of non-Jews. This is a Savior for all the nations, every tribe, every tongue, every kindred on the face of the planet. This is a worldwide and international Savior. It's not all men, everybody equally. All men are drawn and all men are saved. It's all kinds of men. The issue in the text is what do we do with the Greeks, the non-Jews who are coming after our Jewish Savior? And the answer is this. I'm going to die 
You shouldn't even be worried about non-Jews. I'm drawing the nations to me. Men of every nation. It's not all men without exception. It's all men without distinction. Not just Jews. Jews and Gentiles. This is another way of John's ways, another way that John reminds us that the intention of God at the cross was not just Jewish in nature. It is a worldwide church that God is after. It is redeeming people from every tribe and every nation that God's intention was. Not that he gives equal grace all the way across the board. If you believe that, you've got a contradiction with John 6. Because everybody that the Father draws, every last one of them is raised up to eternal life. That makes you a universalist. Or you believe there's a contradiction. So here's the effect of the cross. Not only was it a glory to God the Father, but three things of judgment, three things of victory took place there. First, the world was judged. It was condemned. Its doom is certain. Second, Satan is cast out. He is judged. His doom is certain. He will be executed. And the third thing is, out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the world, and out of the domain of darkness, which is Satan's dominion, Christ, as a result of his death, will gather men and women, an innumerable multitude, from every tribe and nation on the planet, to himself. And he will bring spoil out of this defeated kingdom and from this defeated prince of that defeated kingdom. The ruler, the kingdom that Satan rules over will be destroyed and he has nothing left to rule over. He is destroyed and from his dominion and his kingdom, Christ is drawing people to himself, not just Jews. That is the victory of the cross and it should cause us to just be in awe and wonder that you and I are part of that. That we get a part in what God is doing all across the nations, all around the world in the nations. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You that the, the doom upon this world system is sure and certain and secure. You have accomplished this through the death of Your Son. And, and we just marvel at the wisdom of our great God in the death of Christ and in the redemption of an innumerable multitude of men and women from all over this planet. We thank You, Father, that we get to sing Your praise and rejoice with You uh, re- rejoice before you as part of a church that is not made up of one nation or one ethnicity, but in, but uh, reflects your heart for the nations to make them glad in your Son. We thank you that you have done this. We thank you that you are doing it. And we pray that you would encourage us together in the victory that is ours in Christ. We look forward to the day when not just has the sentence been handed down, but that the execution of that sentence has been carried out and we are freed from Satan and we are freed from sin, the presence of sin, and we get to stand in your presence and give you obedience and love and joy without any thought to the contrary, without any inclination to do otherwise. We long for that, and we love you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.